Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. If you like interview programs, perhaps you've listened to Fresh Air, produced in Philadelphia at WHYY and broadcast regularly on public radio stations nationwide. It's hosted by a woman named Terry Gross. This archive edition of Radio Curious, originally broadcast in 1994, features Terry Gross. I wanted to know who she is and what she does to prepare for and create fresh air. I spoke with Terry Gross by phone from her home near Philadelphia and asked her about the art of interviewing and how she puts together so many interesting programs so frequently. and by having great people to work with. Uh, I'm really lucky in that I work with some people who are wonderful producers and they know how to find interesting guests. They, um, they know the kind of people I like to interview. I mean, we make these decisions together, but um, you can't do a show by yourself. And, you know what I mean? A, a, a five-day-a-week kind of show like that. So I'm really lucky with the people I work with. And we all work very, very hard. I think more we work more hours than... We wish we had to work, but that is always the dilemma, I, I think, that people who have work that they like face, that they have slightly too much of it. Well, what, uh, what kind of staff do you have? Do you have uh, researchers and people who give you synopses of books, uh, as well as the well, technical uh, the background? Sure, we have uh, somebody who works part-time and spends a lot of time in the library um, getting magazine articles and books and um, uh, old newspaper articles and stuff. But nobody reads it and digests it for me. I really believe that um, I should do all the reading and digesting myself. Um, you never know what little detail you're going to pick up on in an interview that's going to be very important to how you want to frame it or that to you is going to really tell you something special about the person you're talking to. Somebody else might not have noticed it, and that telling detail to them that they would have noticed might have meant nothing to you. So I, I think you've really got to do that part of the research yourself. Well, do you find that you script out your questions in advance? Well, I write them out in advance, but I don't write them out word for word. I write out the, the, the basic premise of the question, but it's just a few key words. And I may or may not follow that um, when the interview starts. Part of doing an interview is negotiating this path between where you expected to lead your interviewee and where your interviewee is leading you. And um, the interview is often someplace down the middle. You can't just proceed with your agenda as if the interviewee isn't telling you anything that you want to respond to and pick up on. On the other hand, you don't want to, usually you want to keep getting back somehow to your agenda because there's questions that you really need to ask or want to ask. Well, do you find that you edit out the content of some of the interviews? Well, we edit the interview for length. I usually record about twice as much as we use. So for a 20-minute interview, I usually record around, say, 25, uh, 45 minutes. And um, what we do is we, we edit out the, the dull parts, the parts that, uh, or the parts that aren't as interesting as the other parts. Um, usually when people speak extemporaneously, there's a lot of redundancy in what they're saying, so you can edit out the redundancy. 
And uh, we ask a lot of people. We ask people to think on their feet, to be smart, to be uh, enlightening, to be witty, <laughs> to be concise, uh, to be conversational, all at the same time. And that's a really tall order. Um, usually if you record more than you need, it's easier to boil it down so that you have that kind of concision and eloquence uh, that you're looking for. In the overall time pattern, how long does it take to produce a 10-minute air segment of interview? Well, um, our segments are usually like 15 minutes or 22 minutes, and uh, it takes, well, it takes all the time. It takes a lot of time because it takes the time to find the guest. Then it takes the time to actually set up the studio time with the guest. And then you have to prepare for the interview, then record the interview, then edit the interview then write an intro to the interview, and uh, you're taking a lot of time. Do you personally meet face-to-face with your guests, or uh, do you do it? Rarely. Um, usually, because it's a national show, we don't want to be dependent on interviewing the guests, uh, interviewing only the guests who can make it to Philadelphia, where we're broadcast from. So about 95% of the time, the guest is someplace else at an NPR bureau or an NPR member station in another part of the country. And we talk to them via satellite or fiber optic line. So I rarely actually meet the person that I'm talking to. They're usually far away. I've usually but not always seen a photograph of them. And um, that's it. What I've found very helpful in, in interviews is um, putting a photograph up of the person uh, on my desk while I'm talking to them. Yeah, I don't bother with that myself because if I know what they look like through photographs, then I know what they look like and I don't have to keep looking at it. And also, I'm usually looking at my notes or just completely focusing on what they're saying. So um, I, I, I don't find that for myself to be a very necessary or helpful prop. It sounds like uh, your guests are very relaxed. And uh, how do you put them at ease and make them feel so comfortable? Well, I try to tell them beforehand that it's a very casual show and they should feel free to be as informal as they're comfortable getting. I think that radio works best when it's informal and conversational. And even if you're dealing with weighty subject matter, the way to make that weighty subject matter come across on radio is to talk it, to say it casually. You know, you don't want to deliver a university lecture. You want to just have a conversation about something. The other thing I tell my guests before an interview starts is that we're pre-recording, because we almost always record the interview somewhere between a, a couple of hours or a couple of days before the broadcast. And since we are recording, if they realize exactly what it is they really wanted to say after they've said it, or if they figured out a more concise or better way of putting something, they should feel free to stop and say it again. And, you know, we edit the tape and we could take care of that. Now, to some people that might seem like, oh, no, 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 once you've said something, it's on the record and that's that. But what I'm talking about is if somebody has, say we're talking about um, airstrikes in Bosnia, and somebody's trying to explain um, what the military will be up against, and they've given a kind of long and confusing answer. If they could go back and restate that long and confusing answer in a concise, easy-to-understand way, good, let them do it. It's a help to everybody. They'll sound better, and we'll all better understand what it is they're trying to tell us. So I, I give I give people tools like that, and I and I think that might help to make them feel a little bit more relaxed. To get back to your question, um, 
the other thing I think that helps people feel comfortable is a sense that you know who they are, they're there for a reason, and um, you respect their work, and you will comprehend their answers. I have found that sometimes when somebody is reluctant to talk, it's not necessarily because they're shy, it's not necessarily because they're afraid of being revealed, you know, like revealed in their true hypocrisy or something. It's that they're afraid that they're going to tell you something and you're not even going to get it. And you're not going to care. And it ain't going to matter. And I, I really believe that our personal stories are, you know, among the most important things that we have. So if you tell somebody something very revealing about you, and they could care less, and they somehow indicate that in their response to you, it's... Um, really going to encourage you to not tell them anything else. And I know this from having been interviewed once where the person really said to me, what did you want to be when you were young? What did you want to be when you grow up? And um, I didn't know if I should tell her or not. So finally I said to her, well, I wanted to be a lyricist. And she said to me, no, 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 something interesting. Tell me something interesting you wanted to be. And I thought, forget it. She doesn't think that's interesting enough. If the true version of my life isn't good enough for her, I'm not going to tell her anything. Well, well, good for you. It it sounds um, as if some of your feelings come out in your programs, uh, some of who the real personal Terry Gross is. Do you have a line at, at which point? Um, and the, what comes to my mind, Terry, is um, the war two and a half, three years ago, the, the Gulf War. Uh, you were pretty clear about your feelings on that. <laughs> well, maybe I should ask you what they are. Uh, no, I wouldn't talk about what they are. My feeling about the war, because uh, you know, I, I, I don't like to discuss publicly my political feelings because I, I just think it's, uh, it's better off that they. <laughs> Here's the thing: I, I always think a lot of listeners might believe in the abstract that you could be fair on the radio if you're really opinionated off the air, but um, in practice, I think a lot of people just read things into what you're saying. And and because I feel like my priority isn't sounding off about my political views, my priority is conducting fair interviews, that I'm better off just not being very public about my personal views on certain things, because in some ways they're not that relevant. Let me take a moment and say that you're listening to a 1994 archive edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I'm Barry Vogel. Terry, how did you create the name Fresh Air? Um, I inherited it. In fact, I wanted to change it when I inherited it. <laughs> the sh- I, start- I took over the show in 1975. It was uh, a local show in Philadelphia that was on three hours a day, five days a week. And uh, there were a couple of hosts that preceded me, although the show was very, very different then. Um, but when I took over the show, I wanted to change the name for a couple of reasons. One is, I grew up in New York City, and the New York Times has always run something called the Fresh Air Fund, which is um, a charity that funds uh, funds inner-city kids going to summer camp for a couple of weeks each summer. And it sounded so much to me like it was going to be the Fresh Air Fund <laughs> that I thought it would be a little confusing. And then I thought that it would just summon to mind all these cliches, that some people would think it was an environmental program, and other people would have this image of, like, opening up the window and going, 
a breath of fresh air. And um, I don't know. There seems to be so many cliches attached to it. I wanted to change the title, but I'm awful at coming up with good titles. And since I wasn't able to come up with anything better, I just kept it. But sure enough, just about every time an article has been written about the program, it has carried this headline, A Breath of Fresh Air. <laughs> and uh, just to tell you how, how obtuse I can be, it actually took me months to realize that fresh air was actually a pun on airwaves. Um, that's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's very clear, and it's uh, something well, we need. clear to me, but, you know, we all learn in time. Well, Terry, what drew you to radio interviewing? Is it a childhood dream come true? No, in fact, when uh, I didn't hear an interview on the radio until I was in college, till I was at the very end of college, actually. I grew up being passionate about rock and roll radio, and um, I heard all news radio. I'd never, ever heard an interview on the radio till I was already 20. But when I was... Um, in college, there was a fantastic public radio station at the University of Buffalo campus, WBFO, which I really didn't start listening to till I was around 20 or so. But once I started listening to it, I fell in love with it. And I would have never have had the courage to try to work there um, had I not had a friend who had a friend that worked there. And she suggested that I might try to work on the women's show, on the feminist show somebody was leaving the show so she gave me the phone number of the producer and the name of the producer so I called up and that's how that's how I got my foot in the door it certainly seems to have worked um, well, I was really lucky because this was around 1973 or 4 and the, the first show I worked on was a, as I said a women's show a feminist show and so the women who produced the show had two goals one was to do good, you know, quote, consciousness-raising programs, uh, but the other was to train women, because this was at the time when the women's movement was still getting off the ground, and it was being interpreted in the press mostly by men. It was almost exclusively men who were the editors and men who were the reporters, and in radio, men who were the producers and the engineers and the hosts and so on. And um, it was, it, we women considered it very important that there be women on the air and women at the console and women in editorial positions and so on so that women's issues could be interpreted by women and not always having to go through this filter of, of, of men. So, so as I said, their, their goal was to train women as well as to do good programs. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful way to get trained. I mean, everybody had the sense of mission and <laughs> you know, how important it was for, for more women to get on the air. And, of course, public radio has, has, I think, made an incredible contribution to uh, bringing women's voices on the air. I mean, now, like at the station where I work, there's more women than men on the air, and I think that's true in a lot of places. But when I started in radio, that wasn't, uh, wasn't hardly true at all. Well, during the time that it, that it took from uh, your beginning days in radio until now, um, obviously, I, I think, and, and I would like to hear your feelings, have you encountered, and, and do you still encounter, problems that perhaps a male interviewer might not encounter? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think um, I think things have changed a lot from you know 1973 or four when I got started. I think it's very accepted on the air to have women. I, I don't think I don't think it's uh, it, 
I don't, I don't think it ever throws anyone for a loop or that they even necessarily have different expectations of you when, when you're a woman. Do you find that true in uh, developing the programming and doing your research? And, and I, I ask that because when I hear your program and other uh, women's programs or programs produced and, and announced by women on the air, it certainly doesn't seem to make a distance, but I'm wondering... Um, about a distance or a difference that might be brought up in the production level. Mm, well, I think I think there might be certain subjects that we'd be more aware of or more sensitive to. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, there's certain things we won't let people get away with. A certain kind of degree of um, condescension to women or something, which which you you rarely but sometimes will encounter in a guest. But uh, yeah, I know when I started this. This is. Um, I don't know, 1976 or something, when I was interviewing John Dean when his book Blind Ambition came out, uh, he was in the studio with me and he said to me, um, you don't even have to tell me what you're going to ask me because I can guess the kind of interview that you're going to do. Women do one kind of interview and men do another kind of interview. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll write down the kind of interview that you're going to do and when the interview's over, I'll open up what I wrote down and you'll see that I'm right. So, you know, we did the interview. And then he opened up his little slip of paper, and what he had written down was that I would do a kind of what is it like to be John Dean type of personality interview, whereas a man would have done an interview about power and how he'd used it. And what did you do? Uh, I did a lot of power and how he'd used it, but also some of like who he is. Uh, so it was really a combination of the two, but he admitted he was wrong. He had done that once before as well when he uh, confessed uh, and went to prison. D done what? He admitted he was wrong. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> yes, he had a track record. <laughs> right. Let me take a moment and say that you're listening to a 1994 archive edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I'm Barry Vogel. Terry, I'm interested in early formative experiences as a child uh, that might have put you in the direction of being a person who is always inquisitive and likes to ask a lot of questions, like I do. Um, well, I, I was always, I think, fairly shy, kind of quiet as a kid, um, much less shy and much less quiet around people who I knew very well, but in settings where I didn't know the people well, um, yeah, I'd be pretty quiet, and I think um, for the kind of interview I do, I think that's kind of good training because uh, I was somebody who listened a lot, and listening is a really important part of interviewing. People, people always say to me, oh, you must lose your voice all the time being on the radio, and honestly, I don't talk very much at all on the radio. I mostly listen on the radio and, and, and ask, ask fairly short questions. Listening is such an important part of the work. Well, Terry, uh, what are your dreams about what you might do next? I don't know. <laughs> I've never been very good at planning, unfortunately. I've always admired people who have five-year plans and say, five years down the road, I'll be doing this, and then ten years down the road, I will have achieved that. I've kind of, like, stumbled into things and um, had ideas when I've had them, and uh, I've never been great at knowing where I'm going beyond tomorrow's show. Well, I guess I'm, I'm really asking more about dreams than, uh, than a plan. Uh-huh. Uh, I t 
tend to not have big. I mean, if I don't, I don't have the kind of dreams like like that. I, what can I tell you? I. Yeah, well, that's that's fine. It's it's who you are that that we're interested in meeting. I mean, it's like my dream is not to someday take over Ted Koppel's chair. You know, I don't dream of. You know, I, mean? I I just don't know. I, I kind of do what I do and see where it leads me. Well, Recently, I started doing a few TV interviews, and that's that's been entertaining. Thing, you know, to learn to learn more about a different medium. Let me ask you um, about TV because I'm I'm interested in your thoughts um, because I I think that that you're one of the major influences in radio in the '90s, and we're in a culture that's uh, so heavily influenced by television. What do you see or or feel is the role of radio uh, in the mid '90s and as we see the millennium approaching? Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing I think is important about about the public radio network. Um, I think it's one of the rare places now in mass media where um, issues can be talked about in the amount of time that it takes to talk about it, and it's not talked about for the sake of just controversy. And when I say just controversy, there's a certain kind of way of handling an issue where all you want to do is just generate a lot of smoke. You know, you just want people to kind of get angry and look like they're being passionate and taking a stand. But that's all they're doing is taking a stand, and the issues aren't getting clarified at all. There's no context for it. The facts are inaccurate half the time. You know what I'm talking about, people who are just in there to kind of like squabble a lot. Now, public radio, I think you get a sense of context for an issue. Um, stories take the amount of time they need. Um, it's a place where you can still play jazz and uh, independent label rock and classical music, the kind of music that seems to have no place on commercial radio anymore. Um, so I, I'm really encouraged by things like public radio and, 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 and C-SPAN. I think C-SPAN's kind of interesting. I always like C-SPAN when they're having the um, the conferences. I never watch it when the Senate and Congress, you know, <laughs> when Congress is in session. Right, I know. I just feel like when, yeah, when there's a, like a seminar on like the media today or... Yeah, I heard a really interesting Anita Hill speech on there. Um, but anyway, so I, I think I think radio is really important for what I'd like to see radio do, or at least public radio do, is to continue to play the kind of music that I think is wonderful and important, and and foolishly probably won't get played in other places. To talk to people at length, to talk to subjects in a, in a way that gives context and history and depth, and to have fun too. Yeah, that that's real clear. It seems to me like um, fun is a waning element in our culture. Uh, you think so? Well, many people, um, children seem to have fun in everything they do. Uh, but now, what uh, people do, they they pay to have fun. They they pay to go fishing. They pay to go. Some people pay to go hunting. Some people pay to go skiing. Yet these were um, elements of necessary work um, in our life. And it's interesting, from my perspective, how that shift has changed. From? From what used to be a, um, a job of, of work to go fishing. Uh, now people will go fishing as a, way of, as, as a way of relaxing or as a way of having fun. It's still both. I mean, there's still some people who fish for a living and other people who fish for relaxation. 
but I mean, that's that's life. I, I mean, you know, a musician um, is playing a gig, and they don't often listen to music in their spare time. For me, hearing music is a pleasure, but it's also part of my work. Um, I mean, you know, one person's fun is another person's work. When you eat out, somebody's getting paid to serve you. I mean, it's always like that. Terry, I think that you've answered um, what I wanted to ask before by the, the whole context of, of what you said. But I, I want to know if you have any particular thoughts uh, for young people who may be listening. Um, well, I'll tell you, everybody, I mean, in terms of, uh, well, I'll say this. Everybody I know in public radio, of my generation anyways, broke into public radio by volunteering. This was in the days when most of the stations were at the college level, and you could literally walk in and um, volunteer to make coffee one day and be on the air the next. Um, But I I guess what I'm trying to say is um, sometimes it's worth volunteering someplace just to get your foot in the door and learn a little bit about what's happening and maybe make yourself a little indispensable um, in the hopes that and you could, you could be doing it for money. That's, that's uh, I think, a really good advice. Terry, the last question that I um, always come to ask my guests, have you read any interesting books lately that you could tell us about? Oh, oh boy, I've read a lot of books lately. Um, let me see. Um, I just go blank in questions like that. Why don't I just change it around a little and tell you about a couple of my uh, favorite books? That's fine. And this would be in the fiction area, and they're both related. Um, one is, um, and this, this, this is a book from a few years ago, John Updike's memoir, Self-Consciousness, which is one of my favorite memoirs, and it, it's a memoir that focuses on all the things that physically make him self-conscious about himself, from a stutter to psoriasis. And then there's a Nicholson Baker memoir called You and I, that's the letter U and the letter I, as in Updike and I. And that's, that's Nicholson Baker's memoir about his obsession with John Updike's writing. And it's a very funny memoir in which uh, Baker is always kind of measuring himself against Updike. Is Updike a better writer? Does Updike have a more severe case of psoriasis than Nicholson Baker has? <laughs> it's, it's really very funny and entertaining. Terry Gross is the host of Fresh Air, heard regularly on public radio. The books that she recommends are Self-Consciousness Memoirs by John Updike and You and I by Nicholson Baker. This interview from the archives of Radio Curious was recorded in March of 1994. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. 
Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.